Welcome to Film Fight Club. I'm Glenn Falcon, Fights and Falcon Screen, and we're joined by Sydney filmmaker Chris Evans. Hello. And freelance writer and critic Virat Nehru. Hello, hello. And that was Brighton Rock by the great Queen. Oh, I love that music. And we will be talking much more about that and many other great tracks. We talk about Baby Driver later in the program, along with uh, some of our great ideas for sports films, given it is Origin Night. Yes, it is. Oh, God. Yeah, I don't get Origin. I'm sorry. It's well, it's a lot of fun. You know, New For, South Wales triumph over some other states, some other teams. It's somewhere. Wimbledon week. I'm sorry. Tennis. That's the sport. Farad gets many other sports, which you'll hear much more about. Stay tuned. Yes, you will. But for the moment, we have filmmaker Sarah Barton on the line. Sarah is the director of Defiant Lives, which has its national release around the country on July 17. And she joins us now. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's lovely to be here. So, Sarah... Tell us, you've spent so much time working on this film, years and years. Tell us about Defiant Lives. Well, Defiant Lives really reframes disability away from that sort of tragedy and triumph narrative that we're all so kind of familiar with. You know, it, it really doesn't look at, you know, what a person's impairment is or, you know, how much they might be suffering, in inverted commas. It really looks at disability as a kind of rights movement. And for many people who don't have a lot of connections with disability, um, it's, it's a bit of a revelation because people have always looked at disability as a kind of individual thing and not really thought about it as a kind of rights movement where people have actually fought for better access um, and in a, in a really sort of systemic way. So that's kind of what the film is about. Um, and it, it was, I wanted to make a film that would make people not look away. So I think there's a real tendency for people to just say oh, I don't want to think about disability, it's a bit like death, I don't want to go there. But in fact, Defiant Lives, whilst it does have a a kind of confronting sequence towards the end, towards the beginning rather, um, you know, it's it's a film that I think is very um, empowering for audiences and they can walk out of the cinema feeling, um, you know, ready to take action and ready to be um, in solidarity with the disability rights community. Now, what I found so interesting about this film is the breadth that spanned literally decades, generations. You met so many activists, people who are for many years and are still involved in this movement. Um, How did you go about sourcing all the interviewees and quite amazing footage that you got for this documentary? Well, I think that's where the the eight-year, you know, time frame comes in. Um, I I got some development money in 2008 from Film Victoria, and that allowed me to kind of, you know, snoop around on the internet as it was then, which was pretty limited in what it offered. Um, And then in 2010, I got a Churchill Fellowship, which allowed me to travel to the UK and the US. And rather than just doing what most Churchill Fellows do and take a laptop and write, write up some research, I decided that I needed to film my research. So I took my camera, I took my tripod and lighting kit and all of that, travelled on my own with all my gear, and I shot a whole lot of interviews. And that, it was, I, I sort of looked at it as, as filming my research. So I was learning a huge amount as I went along, but also coming away with some really fabulous interviews that created the sort of bedrock of the film. Now, in, in Australian context, what I was finding quite interesting was the talking about the medical model and the move away from that to a rights model. Because in Australia, I think the seminal work on disability has been done by Gerard Goggin and uh, the late uh, bioethicist Christopher Newell. In 2005, they released a book about disability in Australia about exposing a social apartheid, where, you know, we're talking about uh, disability and how you know, people with disabilities are become second-class citizens almost, unknowingly, but even though it comes from a place of uh, patronising and people don't often realise it. Uh, so what has the medical model actually done to people and attitudes and how the change has brought about? Well, I think 
you know, the medical model places the responsibility for, um, you know, for solving things onto the individual. It, it sort of points the lack, the absence on an individual and says, well, you know, you can't um, get a job because you can't walk and you can't do this. Whereas the social model um, really looks at... Uh, the uh, is social barriers that might prevent a person from getting out and about in the community, the absence of curb cuts, um, no ramps to get into a building if you're confronted with a flight of stairs and you're in a wheelchair, that's, that's a barrier. Um, and so really it turned things up on its, on its head. And it actually came from... It's interesting that uh, Christopher Newell used that term apartheid because actually in some of the history is quite interesting and it does relate to the South African... Um, anti-apartheid movement, there was a man called Vic Finkelstein. Vic Finkelstein was an activist um, against apartheid in South Africa. Um, and then at some point he made his way to England where he met um, another disabled man called Paul Hunt. Now, Paul had lived in an institution. He had a physical disability. And the reason he lived in the institution was that the society was inaccessible for him in his wheelchair. Anyway, Paul and Vic met. And Vic had a real sense of... Um, Apartheid and the injustice of, um, you know, the uh, the the rights of, of people of colour in South Africa, and um, Paul had really thought about, um, you know, disability as an oppression. And the two guys came together and they formed this um, organisation with the catchy title of the Union of Physically Impaired Against Segregation. And um, I suspect that, um, you know, Christopher Newell had that organisation in mind when he talked about apartheid and segregation. Yeah, it's fascinating that we talk about, when you think about institution, a lot of people might think it was, you know, quite a long time ago, but that's not true. So what are the kind of people or what kind of attitudes you're trying to change with this documentary? Well, I think, you know, a lot of people, a lot of people don't know. You know, they, they just see, they see a disabled person and they see tragedy. They see, you know, something, someone other than themselves. And so I want really you know people who come and see the film to just start to feel a whole lot more comfortable you know in that space around disabled people and kind of go well you know if i think of disability as a social oppression and you know i have disabled friends then you know i can behave in a much more productive way i can behave in a much more inclusive way that that actually invites um disabled people into our workplaces into our social functions into our homes you know Really, we all need to be doing that thing, which includes disabled people in our everyday lives in a, in a kind of non-special way, you know, just in an everyday. But I think people avoid it because they think, oh, I don't know what to do, you know, like I don't know how to make that happen. And I like to think that after watching Defiant Lives, people can transpose the, the sort of politics of the film into individual situations and, and their own kind of um, situation. Yeah, it's funny because it often seems like when people think about people with disabilities it's often the one day the international day with people with disabilities and you know a lot of uh, you know ink spilt and a lot of opinions are spouted upon and then people forget about them because then they become uncomfortable again so it's almost like the one tokenistic day of the year that people actually bring them out there's a huge parade and then you go back to being uh, invisible again so in what sense do you think the disability rights movement can move forward and gain kind of visibility in the platform? Well, I think it's, um, you know, there's a line at the end of the film that says nothing about us without us. And I think disabled people want to be included in consultation. They want to be involved in change. They want to be uh, involved in designing the way things move forward. 
And so I think for too long we've sort of been, you know, making decisions for people and, and kind of knowing what we know what's best. And I think, you know, at every step, disabled people need to be included and involved and, um, you know, and, and in, involved in decision making and not just sort of um, patronised and, and, you know, have decisions made for them. So it really is about, you know, involving disabled people in every sort of level of society and um, and thinking, you know, do I have... I mean, if, you know, people, I, I had a friend who was invited to an engagement party and she was a wheelchair user and the engagement party was upstairs. Like, those people just didn't think about the fact that their friend in the wheelchair was not going to be able to go to that party. How hurtful is that? So sometimes it's that simple. Other times it's more complex. But once you involve disabled people in all aspects of decision-making, then that's when you'll get it right. Now, Sarah, the people around Australia will very soon have an opportunity to see this film. You talk about a lot of Australian content in the film, including the NDAS. You included the famous speech by Julia Gillard. Um, what are you hoping... How are you hoping this film will have an impact specifically in an Australian context? Well, the, the film does actually show the Australian, the US and the UK context all in together, which is a bit of an achievement in itself because it was structurally extremely difficult to um, to structure. But I think that it, that it certainly does, you know, give people a sort of global context to think about disability. And, and I'm really hoping that it puts disability on the table for conversation in a different way, in a way that, that isn't about tragedy, it isn't about triumph. It's about, okay, what are we all doing, you know, what, what are we all doing not enough of? to make sure that disabled people are able to access all levels of our society. So I think the film sort of gives people a little bit of confidence and a few tools and a, and a bit of knowledge to sort of go, oh, yeah, I think I know what I can do in my life. You know, maybe a sh you know, someone who's a shopkeeper can say, I think I'd like to get rid of that step into my shop. Or, you know, a school teacher can think differently about, you know, how they include disabled children in their classroom. Everybody, no matter what they do in life, can can relate these ideas and issues to the people that they connect with, that you know, the disabled people that they might connect with on a day-to-day -day basis. And I think people can have the skills to think, oh, I could do that a bit differently. Could I just say one little thing about the, the screening model for the film? It's, we're using a company called Demand Film, and so people can request a screening in their local area. And when we've got someone who's requested the screening and can tell all their friends, that's when it works best. We have some screenings up on the website, um, and people can certainly go and buy a ticket to those. But if you don't see a screening in your area and you think you could get, you know, a, a bunch of people to come along to one, then put in a request and we'll help you um, run one. And that's, that's how it works. So it provides an opportunity for films like ours to have a cinema screening um, with some of the risk taken out. So, you know, we know who's coming before the screening and we know that it's going to be viable. Well, that's fantastic. We do hope people do seek the film out and take one of the opportunities to go see it. Again, Sarah, thank you so much and uh, best of luck for next week's national release. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. We'll be back shortly talking about Baby Driver. Stay tuned. UTS is number one again. Ranked as Australia's number one young university for the third year in a row because we harness the best of youth, the curiosity, contagious energy and the belief in a better world. Join us for a course info evening. To learn more, go online and search UTS Course Info Night. UTS, sponsors of 2SER 107.3. These school holidays bring your creative kids along to one of Australia's longest running festivals for children. The Way Out West Festival at Casula Powerhouse Liverpool from the 12th to the 15th of July. 
Celebrating imagination, spontaneity, creativity and storytelling, the festival explores the art of play for the child inside and the child beside you. Tickets are on sale now at wayoutwestfestival.com.au. Kusula Powerhouse Liverpool, sponsors of 2SER 107.3. And we're back on Film Fight Club. Now, one of the big releases this week is Baby Driver, the new film by Edgar Wright, the director of Short of the Dead, my favourite Hot Fuzz, Scott Pilgrim vs. The World, well. at World's End. Yep. The Cornetto others. Trilogy. The Cornetto Trilogy. There'll be another fight at some point about which one of these fantastic films is the best one. But for now, it is all about Baby Driver, one of the best soundtracks we have seen in the film in a long time. There are some mixed opinions here, but there is at least one of us who really really loved this film. Yeah, that's me. Um, I think... <laughs> I, I liked that early call-out that it's one of the best soundtracks you've heard in a long time. I think this is a way better retro jukebox musical than Guardians of the Galaxy, which everybody <laughs> likes to no, rave I'll, about. I'll pay that. Yeah, because yeah. This, this movie has some interesting cuts, you know, some off-the-beaten-track cuts. It's not just uh, and, uh, retro uh, when, cheese. And when it actually goes retro, it's not just the 80s, actually retro music. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, bell bottoms, wow. Exactly, yeah. Know. They didn't just play, you know, Bohemian Rhapsody. It was bright and rock for good reason. Yeah, exactly. There's some fantastic cuts on this. Ba- if you don't know what it's about, it's basically a car chase heist thriller. It's in the vein of The Driver, which is obviously a big source of inspiration. And another movie that took inspiration from it, Drive, although this one has a lot more talking and a lot less staring into space. It does. This is effectively Ansel Elgort. He's a young man. He's a fantastic driver. He's part of a crew with uh, some fantastic characters, Kevin Spacey, Jamie Foxx, John Hamm, John Bernthal. And it has all the typical Edgar Wright flourishes. It's a satire of some of, road, of these road movies in some ways, but also quite a straightforward uh, adaptation. Yeah, also a, straight, a straightforward crime uh, thriller. Uh, in that sense, I I think I liked it that the film didn't pull its punches for the most part. It did pull quite a few punches towards the end when it lost me, but uh, by that point it didn't. So for the most part, I was quite into it. And once again, the classic Edgar Wright, you know, flourishes of uh, synchronizing action beats to music, yep. which I think is its Edgar Wright staple. But in this film, that's how it really, really shone through. I was expecting that to be a lot more um, pronounced, having heard some of the pre-release hype for this film. It's subtle, but the music gives just a nice beat to choreograph the action. This is basically uh, one last heist-type movie. You, you know how it's going to go down. There'll be betrayals. Um, there's the, the good kid who wants to get away and uh, the, the world of crime that won't let him get out. It obeys all the cliches, in a very loving way. This is 100% a movie nerd movie. It takes place in a fantasy world. The reason it worked so well for me is that it cast the spell with this fantasy right from the get-go and never let me go. It opens with this beautiful um, kinetic dance sequence of of as a little good probably it's, the best scene in the film. Yeah. Yes, yeah. It may well be actually. It it grabbed me with that right away, but it shows him dancing through Guys, life. Guys, Chris is uh, tearing up talking yeah, about yeah, this film. This is emotional stuff, all right? I mean, this has never happened, and this is probably like Chris's <clears> top <throat> five films of the year, so give him credit. It's <laughs> no, I did, very I did hard really for like him to film. talk about this film. It's no. a 
it's a fantastic movie. And one of the best things I liked about it was these characters. And people like working with Edgar Wright because he creates incredible characters, including Kevin Spacey, who can be comical but also incredibly maniacal and take all the best characteristics of the roles we've seen him and know him from best and put him together in one film. My problem with the film was uh, tonally. I think it was quite disjointed. On one hand, you had Spacey and Jamie Foxx, who were incredibly self-aware about their characters. Even John Hamm was playing it quite, uh, you know, if you liked him in that sort of... Uh, Madman Avatar, you'll be surprised what he does with his role in this film. He's fantastic, he's, right? He's, I, I, I agree, actually. He's so good. He's having the time of his life doing everything he possibly can to break away from his madman persona. Uh, yeah. and, it, and it's working. But at the same time, look, even that works and, you know, the... The actress who played John Hamm's girlfriend. I'm forgetting her uh, name. Elsa Gonzalez. Yes, uh, uh, you know her coming, role was fantastic. fantastic. In fact, I thought she was better than uh, Lily James, who plays Angela Elsworth's fifties uh, waitress. She did. She archetype. was basically like the double R diner waitresses from Twin yeah, Peaks. Yeah, but, but, but that's the thing. On one hand, you have this eclectic group of characters who are very self-aware and they know what they're doing and they're very quick-witted. And on the other hand, you have this fifties kind of retro fantasy with Angle Elsword and the waitress and the diner. These two things didn't collide and they didn't come together. It was just two very different films for me. It's a mashup of multiple movie genres, basically. The reason why I think the lightness and musical-inspired nature of the early scenes and the crime thriller darker turn that the film takes later on did work for me is because despite it going into more dramatic territory than anything Wright's done before, I think it maintains a lightness of touch in the direction throughout that allows it to sort of nimbly swerve between genres. Um, the lightness is is basically all in the direction. There's a se- even if the movie is going into dark and dangerous places, there's constantly a sense of humor through it in the way that, as we spoke about before, it's edited to the beat. There's a sense of magic to it in the choreographed use of colors, or the really fluid and uh, once again beautiful use of the Steadicam. Uh, I found this movie to be just an aesthetic delight. I. Yeah, the the characters are great, but I was just loving being immersed in this world more than relating to these people as people more than movie archetypes. Yeah, watching and listening to it, seeing gunfights set to, you know, it's rampaging style of music is absolutely fantastic. And I enjoyed watching, you know, this light touch, the typical reverent uh, tone that he brings to a lot of his movies where he's slightly parodic and but at the same, and same time paying homage, but he went a little too far in paying homage to the films and trying to make a straight thriller at times. I mean, there's bits where, you know, people things happen to people as you would expect you know fatalistic uh, you know if, if, if someone gets hit by a car this happens you expect them to die but there's one character and we won't know who it is but there's one character who just seems to have this superhuman ability beyond all else and was appearing in an entirely different film which could have been a parody where everyone else was kind of for the most part in a straight thrill and that kind of jarred me a bit I, I was okay with that I thought like there's got to be a guy who keeps coming in one of these movies it didn't go too far for me I mean if I was watching a Takashi Miike film, maybe, but <laughs> I wasn't. I was watching an Edgar Wright film, so I was a bit surprised by that. But at the same time, I think Kevin Spacey, uh, if he told Edgar Wright, give me the best best scene ever in any movie, I think he got that in, in this film. The way, I'm not going to spoil Spacey's any of so that. Spacey's no, so funny. No, no, not just so funny. The- I, th- I think the way Spacey just being Spacey in that one scene at the parking lot. 
Yeah, exactly. Was I think the best Kevin Spacey moment I've had in a lot of Kevin Spacey moments in yeah, my entire I, life. Yeah, I agree. It's funny not in the way that you laugh at it when you're watching, but then no, I can I, laugh at it two weeks later. I, 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 when I saw it, I'm when like, I think back. did that just happen? Did Kevin Spacey just agree to that? Yeah, and of course he did. <laughs> yeah, uh, but at the same time, uh, let me come back to the genre mashing. And you said the nimble movement between genres. I like that, Chris. That's very, very sort of uh, very movie poetic, nerd. Yes. Very movie nerd of you. Uh, but at the same time. Look, I'm going to apply the same critique that I had of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. Because of that, and I feel the genre mashing doesn't help because we do not care. I did not care about what happened to Angela Elsword and Lily James because I always knew what was going to happen to those characters. You know, why go into a dark place if you're not going to actually commit? My feeling is I did care what happened to Ansel Elgort, but Lily James, as much as she was the crux of the film, him trying to get away, had this girl he absolutely adores, she was the least interesting character in the film. She had absolutely no agency. This, I'll I'll grant you guys some, uh, you know credit on on what you're saying here i think with regard to the um okay deborah's character i think i i I was won over by the romance initially i think it's it's very good chemistry that we have between lily james and ansel elgort Mm. and i thought there was a a sweetness to their they're not real people once again they're movie fantasy characters but there's a sweetness to their interactions i'm all on board for the dynamic but i'm just not on board with Later the on, characterization, the, which is done so lightly, to, yeah, with a flippant paintbrush on a Pollock painting, which is not even a Pollock painting, it is to, just you know, <laughs> some kid painting a with a paintbrush, to, you know. Collage, Towards yeah. the end of this film, I think there are definitely some things that Deborah does that show that she's portrayed way too thinly as a character. Her there's a line of dialogue that reveals exactly how deep her and um, Baby's relationship actually is at this point in the film, and I was like, "Whoa, wait!" I, I felt like maybe the movie had just been hiding yeah. how what had gone on up until this moment, but no. Um, she's at that point defined sort of as an accessory to Baby rather than as a real person. You can definitely take some issue with that, but overall, I was able to go with the characters and suspend my disbelief and feel like they still were in danger, even though we were going through movie cliches because I wanted to believe in the movie fantasy that this was constructing. I have, I have to agree. Look on a, on the all out of that. This is a great film, and I think we've fallen into traps sometimes of comparing. Uh, it's such a great director. We may be comparing this to some of his greatest films, but at the end of the day, on any measure, this is a good. Film. Actually, actually, like thinking because it's Edgar Wright, we actually hold him to a very high standard. I think that's a problem more than anything else. We expect so much from him, and so I think it's more about our expectations than anything else. I think it's too. Well, Baby Drive will be in cinemas around the country tomorrow. Do check it out. Please do. We'll be back shortly talking about Alf uh, Sport and what sports movies you will want to see. Stay tuned. What have you always wondered about Sydney and the people who call it home? 2SER is seeking Sydney. Head over to 2SER.com and ask the questions you want our team to investigate. You're there, why not vote for whichever question you'd like answered? To SER 107.3 Stories, Ideas, Music. UTS Haverfield Club offers great quality food with terrific views and is just a short trip from the city. Open every day, your Sunday long lunch is soundtracked by the Sunday Sessions Live Musicians, making UTS Haverfield Club's dining experience one to truly savour. Whatever the occasion, you'll be inspired by the delicious menu and the superb location on Iron Cove Bay. Visit utshaverfield.com.au for info and bookings. 
sponsors of 2SER 107.3. And we're back on Film Fight Club. Now, of course, it is Origin Night. Go the Mighty Blues. And we do love sports here at Film Fight Club. And <laughs> we, we, we do. We do. And uh, we, there's a lot of great sports films out there. And, you know, we've seen some classics, seen some great ones. But we also feel that there are some films, or sports, I should say, that either haven't and should be made into films or... If they have been in films, haven't really do- been done justice as well as they should. Yes, and one of those sports is tennis. Um, I know because, uh, well, we are getting a tennis movie of some sort with Battle of the Sexes with Steve Carell and Emma Stone. We're getting two, actually. Uh, two, and Wimbledon as well with Shia LaBeouf playing uh, John McEnroe, which is going to be... Well, I don't know. Disaster of Epic Proportions, Will I guess. Will it be better than the last movie called Wimbledon? <laughs> that was a great movie. Come on. <laughs> All right. So isn't Margaret Court a character in this new Battle of the Sexes movie? Well, if Margaret Court realized that she was going to be immortalized in Battle of the Sexes, I think she might uh, have something to say about that. I hope not. But anyway, <laughs> uh, talking about tennis, actually, because I think we haven't had a good tennis movie because it doesn't feature much tennis. I think we need a good tennis movie with actual tennis, and it's a beautiful sport, as David Foster Wallace has immortalized in his essay, Roger Federer as a Religious Experience. We need a movie of about tennis, you know, with actual gameplay. I think Virat is right. Um, tennis lends itself to cinema, right? There's, it's, you know, there's two central figures, so you've got easy conflict. The action of it is is really dynamic. Yeah, it's constant very much motion. Like, like like boxing. It's like and a gunfight. Yeah, you can boring. shoot a tennis match like a gunfight, but for yeah. some reason, no one's done yeah. this yet. You've never seen Strangers on a Train? Go YouTube the clip now. Just Strangers on a Train tennis this is the most tense tennis match you will ever see. <laughs> Actually, I, I have found a way to solve the goat debate. Goat is acronym for greatest of all time in for tennis nerds. I'm sorry, I had to clarify that. Uh, which is. The Roger Federer biopic. You know, we need a Roger Federer biopic. And who better to play Roger Federer than Roger Federer? Because, of course, he's bigger than anyone else. He's better than anyone else. He's pretty much a celebrity in himself. People would pay just to watch him. And, frankly, I would watch 90 Minutes of Federer just being Federer. I don't even care if he plays tennis in that movie. I think... We could scale it down a bit, but scale the international conflicts up by making a movie about table tennis. Yes. Whoa. Even yes. faster edits, even more intense than uh, than r- traditional tennis in the way that it could translate to the screen. Um, I think table tennis is a sport that tends to, at least in the Western world, draw outcasts to it. So you could put together a quirky cast of characters, um, and I, I think it would be really intense. But as Virat spo- uh, <laughs> mentioned when we spoke about this before the interview, there is a very interesting political undercurrent that we could bring to this film. Yeah, I mean, in that sense, table tennis is much like chess, you know, as chess has always been about the politics and communism versus capitalism. You know, Pawn Sacrifice with Toby Maguire was made about chess, you know, with uh, Bobby Fischer winning. And that was a huge moment at that point. And table tennis, in the same way, has a huge political undercurrent because European players at one point were dominating table tennis in the field with their mid-level play. They used to loop the ball, uh, you know, for table tennis nerds, you know. Right now, China is dominating with what's called third ball attacking, which is you serve, then return, and in the third ball, they'd usually attack. It's a very aggressive, super aggressive style of play, which suits the pinfall grip. So they shifted the game and pulled the rug out from under Europe. 
Pretty much, because European players were used to playing what would be called mid-level attack, which is you go far away from the table and you just loop extended rallies. I just want to say you are still listening to a film show. We just yeah. want to clarify <laughs> but, but, but like, it's, it's fascinating because it's got such political dynamism. And Boris Gump does not have a monopoly on table tennis in film. That's true. I know. Going back to what Verrett said about chess, I'd like to see if we can stretch the definition of sport a little bit here to games. I'd like to see a sports movie for actual sports Play sorry for a chess movie for actual chess players that is built on the assumption that you know how it's played so that it can go into the mind games and really focus on the actual moves actually, actually, instead no, actually, of making a movie around the game. The issue with chess is you always see the final scene in the chess game or this final bit where they knock the king out, you know, or yeah. like from Russia with love style. But I'd, uh, rather, I'd be happy to sit and watch from beginning to end. Yeah, but you I, see I, the I, intense sorry, faces, I'm, but you don't see the strategy. Glenn, you did not say, knock the king out. <laughs> you do not knock pieces out I, I, in chess. I, I, I play I'm some sorry. very aggressive chess, so I'll have you know. Sorry. You just, <laughs> I, 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 you, you I, just I, flip the board, I, don't I, you? I do. <laughs> you just do that. You're that any, guy. Name the place, anyway. Anytime. Um, but uh, speaking of sport, uh, there are many amazing sports out there. I'm going to go a little bit left field. I, we, I spoke last week about comics. I'm a huge Calvin and Hobbes fan. It's my favorite comic strip. There is a game within that Calvin ball, which I think would be fun and anarchic to adapt more broadly. We've never really seen a Calvin and Hobbes movie. It's very difficult to adapt comic strips. We saw it with Garfield. Um, there are a couple of people who dressed up and had this YouTube series as Calvin and Hobbes literally just <laughs> act out the sketches. It's absolutely hilarious, but I think we could really do with a proper Calvin and Hobbes film and see how Calvin ball, which has absolutely no rules, you make it up as you go along, and, and that is how the mind of young Calvin works, and I'd like to see how that plays out. We've really stretched the definition of sports and <laughs> with this one. Yeah. We just make up a sport. Why we won't not? be hosting Sports Fight Club anytime soon. <laughs> oh, well, I think it's something else called Sports Fight Club. <laughs> well, I mean, look, there's so many great sports films happening. I mean, we had the major boxing match this week, Home and Pacquiao. We have the exciting news about the new Rocky film, which reportedly may feature Ivan Drago returning. Ah, okay. And, and potentially, you know, the son facing off against the man who's responsible for the heavy side, which would make, would make an incredible but follow-up to Creed. How is that possible? America and Russia are now friends. Oh, well, th- that's what's going to be interesting about this film. I wonder how the political undercurrent Maybe we could have a here. North Korean boxer emerge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That would, that would be fascinating. How, how about we just create new other stereotypes which weren't there already? Why not? <laughs> we, we are fresh out of time. Uh, we will be back next week. Go the Mighty Blues and stay tuned for the Sonic Assassin. Good night. Good night. Good night.